Welcome to the Jonah Carey Podcast, friends. Thank you so much for tuning in. Our guest today is Jay Jaffe. Jay the Maestro of Jaws. Jaws, a great uh, little invention they came up with. It's basically a way to evaluate Hall of Famers on an objective level when it comes to baseball. And so we get into that. Two players recently announced as joining the Hall of Famer will be joining in the summer. Harold Baines and Lee Smith, very controversial picks. Uh, both fall short of the historical standards that Jay has uh, kind of pointed us to, and other people can pretty much see with their eyes. Harold Baines, not necessarily of the class of Willie Mays and Ty Cobb and players like that, let alone Alan Trammell or Ron Santo or <laughs> players of that ilk. So uh, we get into that, and whether or not it should matter, should chafe us when players who don't have the resumes that you would typically associate the Hall of Fame Get into the Hall of Fame, what we do with that information. I think you can fall on both sides, and uh, you'll see how Jay and I argue that. Uh, I'll talk about Larry Walker, one of my favorite players of all time, and he's on the ballot this year. And uh, Jay and I both make the case in Mr. Walker's favor. A wonderful player and a very, very funny guy, and uh, he should be in the Hall of Fame. And uh, we do some hot stove talk, too, so enjoy all of that. Some Dodgers, some Phillies, what's going on in the world of baseball. Jay calling us. Or we're calling into Jay from the winter meetings, which are taking place in Las Vegas this year. And so uh, my best to Jay and the other hardworking reporters on the ground in Vegas doing all the work that they're doing. Meantime, I am here with a newborn, but also working. You'll find all my work at CBS Sports, and there's a lot of it. Uh, you'll check out every team in the major leagues. I'm doing hot stove rundowns of each team. And as the uh, hot stove season goes on, some of the articles, depending on when they're written, might include some major transactions. I actually wrote about the Phillies as one of the first teams out of the gate because we're doing it alphabetically by division. And I started with the NL East. And so as a result, I wrote another piece about the Phillies, which you'll find at CBS Sports. Uh, it just went up on Tuesday. I'm right, recording this on Tuesday night, so you'll see it uh, on Wednesday when the podcast comes out. Uh, check that out. I've also got a piece on the Orioles, which should be up on Wednesday. That's the latest in my hot stove rundown team section bonanza. Uh, did the entire National League, so now we're on to the American League with the Orioles. 14 more teams to go, and I'll also be reporting in on any news that happens from hot stove season. So the piece today was about the Phillies and also specifically about former MVP Andrew McCutcheon, who's now a Philadelphia Philly. Stay tuned for bigger news. Uh, Bryce Harper will eventually go somewhere, and so will Manny Machado. and might see trades. Corey Kluber could be on the block. Uh, Trevor Bauer could be on the block. Lots and lots of guys. Could be one of the most eventful hot stove seasons in quite some time. So stay tuned for all that good stuff and tune into CBS Sports dot com for the coverage over there. Myself, my colleagues, RJ Anderson, and Mike Exisa, and Dane Perry, and Matt Snyder, and everybody else. A great crew. Check out their work, too. And, uh, yeah, that's uh, all I have for you at this moment. So, hope everybody is doing great wherever you are, and you can enjoy this edition of the John Kerry Podcast. It is with my friend, the excellent writer for Fangraphs, Jay Jaffe. Enjoy.
Jay Jaffe, live at the winter meetings. How the hell are you? Uh, I'm good. You know, it's uh, I'm kind of tired, uh, as you always get uh, when it comes to the winter meetings. This year I had the added uh, uh, burden of waking up at 5.30 a.m. Uh, so that I could fly out here in time for the Hall of Fame results uh, announcement on Sunday. Uh, and I'm still kind of catching my breath in addition to the usual jet lag that comes with uh, being three time zones away. Well, plus those 14 consecutive hours of craps tables aren't just, that's not going to happen on its own. You got to fuel that. You got to get in. You got to lean into This is not Nashville, my friend. This is Vegas. This is a different story. The thing about that, this is the before swine for me. I, I don't even want to gamble 20 bucks on a, on a football game or, <laughs> or, or whatever. I'm like, you know, just, I have no interest in gambling and it's just all, you know, I'd, I'd feel bad if I lost, you know, $5 at blackjack. So, uh, I, I'm just walking through these casinos like, la la la, you can't tempt me. <laughs> I have a, a poker home game that I play in occasionally. I played last night in the second hand of the night. I drew, I got, I had a straight flush and hold them and I ended up winning. So I feel like had I been at the winter meetings this year and I'm not there because I have a newborn. Uh, and that was literally last night when poker was the first time I think I've left the house since the baby was born. But had I left, uh, it would have, uh, it would have not gone well. So, uh, so you're doing in spirit, even though you're not gambling or doing anything like that, maybe it's just as well for all parties involved. One thing you are doing, however, is uh, writing about the hall of fame and we have lots to talk about. And we're going to start with the single most deserving Hall of Famer of all time, and that is Harold Baines. You've got to look at Babe Ruth. You've got to look at Ty Cobb and Willie Mays and say, you know what? Harold Baines is above those guys. But here's the thing, Jay Jaffe, and you tell me if you agree or disagree with this point of view. My attitude about the Hall of Fame is as follows. All things being equal, we would have it exactly down to Jaws. or very close. Jaws is the metric, by the way, that you came up with for listeners who don't know. Uh, and the idea is it, it looks at peak value and career value and says, okay, what is the average Hall of Famer? Not the average player, what's the average Hall of Famer? So, so-and-so, you're comparing him to the average guys at the position for the Hall of Fame. Great, love it, awesome. So, in a perfect world, you'd have some sort of objective analysis that would land you somewhere close to that. But what ends up happening is that some candidates who are deserving do not get in or take way too long, and some candidates who are not deserving do get in. And my attitude about this is as follows. The Hall of Fame is supposed to honor the best and the brightest, and only the best and the brightest. But fundamentally, it's a celebration of the game. And it bothers me more when a guy who is clearly deserving either takes way too long to get in, including after his death, like Ron Santo, or just flat out does not get in. Now, the Hall of Fame has remedied that situation, or the voters have, where there are very few candidates left who are just egregious omissions, aside from the PED guys, which is another story. But the bottom line is, I want all of those people to get in. And if it means that Lee Smith and Harold Baines get into the Hall of Fame, you know what? I think I'm okay with that. I don't think Harold Baines' family is upset about this. I think they're happy. I think that old-time White Sox fans, I have an Orioles fan friend who emailed me and said, I don't know if Baines deserves to get in, but I like Harold Baines, so who cares? That's my attitude, Jay Jaffe. Who cares? He wasn't necessarily a worthy Hall of Famer, but he was a great player. Maybe not quite as good as some other guys. Get all the deserving ones in, and some other ones get swept in. I'm okay with that. You know, I... There are times when I take that attitude, uh, you know, that, that, uh, you know, I, I'd much rather there not be omissions, you know, at, at the expense of the occasional, uh, you know, in, uh, ill-chosen inclusion. I'm not sure this is one of them. I mean, last year, you know, when it came to, uh, the election, uh, the modern baseball era committee elections of, uh, um, Alan Trammell, whom I, uh, uh, believed, uh, strongly should, should have been in the yeah. Hall of Fame and supported all the way through his candidacy, 
uh, and uh, uh, Jack Morris, whose candidacy I, I, I fought with some vigor uh, on the other side of it. That's a horse trade I would have made. Um, yeah. Harold Baines, I don't see I, – I, I, what did I get back from that? You know? <laughs> I like Harold Baines. I, you know, I enjoyed him as a player, mm-hmm. uh, when I was, you know, when I was 12 years old or whatever. Um, but there's no analysis to me that really, that I can find an acceptable, um, uh, rationale other than his career hit total. And, you know, if it, it just, this feels like a thumb in the eye of any kind of advanced analysis. Uh, towards the Hall of Fame, and it's like if you're going by one, you know, career hit total, then you, there's just there are dozens of guys. Johnny Damon, Johnny Damon, Al Oliver, um, Veda Pinson. I mean, all these guys who are just like you know, they would be like 30th percentile Hall. Of Fame. Al Oliver was a better player than Harold Baines. I'll say that right off. <laughs> uh, yes, okay, yeah. there are there are a lot of them. I mean, mm-hmm. even Omar Vizquel, who's you know who's yeah. shaping up to be the most polarizing candidate since since Morris, uh, uh, would be a better choice. And I oh, yeah. like. Pretty much the worst Hall of Fame shortstop, or, or 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 better than only Rabbit Moranville. Harold Baines is twenty fifth out of twenty sixth among uh, right fielders in Jaws, uh, ahead of only Tommy McCarthy, who's the single worst Hall of Famer. Uh, a guy who barely, you know, who who played short career nineteenth century was really more of a pioneer. Uh, had like two or three good years in like non uh, AL NL leagues. Um, and just, you know, like, just kind of an embarrassment here. You know, he drags everybody down if you're, if you're averaging the position for Jaws. Um, I don't want Harold Baines, I don't, like, I'm happy for Harold Baines the person. Uh, I could not help but be moved by, uh, watching him break down at his press conference. Yeah. No one talking about his father. You'd have to be a monster not to feel something for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want to turn this into the, uh, let's bash Harold Baines-a-thon. Um, but, the process by which he got in was horrific. You've got Jerry Reinsdorf, who employs Harold Baines oh boy. Uh, as as a uh, uh, as a uh, ambassador and a special uh, uh, spring training instructor in that room. If nothing else, can we do a obvious conflict of interest? Uh, you've got Tony Larusa, who managed him in, in both uh, Chicago and Oakland. Um, you know, you've got strong voices in the room. And in an insular industry, it's inevitable you're going to get this kind of crossovers. Joe Carter had several, uh, you know, executives and teammates and managers and stuff like that in that room too. Uh, but, you know, he didn't get the votes. Um, I talked to one voter yesterday who, uh, w- who was actual voter and they're prohibited from saying anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I can't, I can't say this person's name, but this person said, I was in the room and I never saw it coming. I mean, they just, wow. But the force of the personalities involved was such that, you know, all of a sudden it's, uh, uh, welcome to the Hall of Fame, Harold Baines. And, and I've, ne- you know, in, in my coverage of this goes back to the winter of 2002, uh, the system that became Jaws introduced in the winter of 2004. I have never been more shocked by a single Hall of Fame result than I was by this. Wow. Um, and I'm hardly the only one. Uh, you know, when you look at the fact that he got 6.1% of the vote hmm. maximum from the writers, uh, 94% of the writers said no, not just once, but five times. Um, and that's an affront. Uh, you know, it's, it, I can understand how Lou Whitaker or Ted Simmons or, or, or somebody can slip through the cracks on year yeah. one given the, the longstanding custom of only voting for, you know, the best of the best, uh, on that first year and, you know, mistakes being made, but five times, come on. Yeah, I was chatting. That, that just that just that this is this is bad process more than anything else. 
I was chatting with one of my favorite sports writers of all time. One of the privileges of being back in Montreal is I get to hang out a little bit with Michael Farber, who's like a hero of mine. and such a lovely and generous and wonderful guy, SI alum and so forth and so forth. And he was saying Gil Hodges. And I thought, well, Gil Hodges, maybe, maybe not. There's people of that generation who believe that. But, I mean, Gil Hodges was a better player than Harold Baines, too. You, you could sort of go down the line and find a bunch of them. So I, I do hear what you're saying. And the thing about Reinsdorf, too, by the way, what is the deal with Jerry Reinsdorf exactly? Because, there, you know, there are 30 owners in baseball. This guy has such an outside influ- outsized influence. It seems to me that he's pretty much single-handedly torpedoed the 1994 season. He was the one who basically plucked Bud Selig and... and and goaded the owners into do basically wreaking havoc on the players to the point that it created a strike to the point that it canceled the season. And this guy just seems to be, you know, in an era when owners, general managers, everybody's kind of more modern, more progressive, more this, more that. He's this old-timey guy with terrible ideas who has this gigantic influence over the sport. We have a new commissioner who's pretty smart. Why are we still talking about Jerry Reinsdorf and Jerry Reinsdorf having influence over anything except the club sandwich at this point? Yeah, if I could grow another middle finger, I would. I would have. I would have three upraised middle fingers towards towards him at all, at all times. Ninety four alone. You're talking to a Utah Jazz fan who's you know just for the Bulls alone, the Jordan era. True, true. You know, you know screw screw Jerry Reinsdorf, but um, you know, and it's 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 particularly galling knowing that you know Reinsdorf's in the room and George Steinbrenner, who left a much bigger footprint on the oh, game. Oh yes. Uh, than any other owner of the last. You know, half century or more uh, can't even get past the f- you know fewer than five votes euphemism that they use to avoid embarrassment. Yeah. And Harold freaking Baines is getting in because Jerry Reinsdorf is, you know, his force of personality is is uh, uh, is taking over that room, and it's just yeah, it's frustrating. It, you know, it's frustrating that anybody can have that size that outsized impact in this you know this small process, and and. Look, let's let's be let's be honest here. Joe Morgan was on that committee too, and yep. you know that Joe, you know Joe Morgan just wants to stick a thumb in, in you know in the eye of any kind of an actual analysis uh, beyond. Oh yeah, I played with him; he was great. You know, it's it, it this is this is a travesty of a shamakery. <laughs> well played, I enjoyed that. Uh, my wife Amy, who you know, she and I were talking, uh, and we were discussing Steinbrenner actually as a candidate, and she said, "Wouldn't Steinbrenner be a great candidate?" And I said, "Well, I mean." You know, he came up for char- for felony charges, if I'm not mistaken, back in the day. I mean, there were there were serious legal issues surrounding Steinbrenner, and aside from him being just kind of boisterous, uh, he had some problems. You know, we're going way way back. And so, I mean, what what do we do with something like that? Do you like George Steinbrenner as a Hall of Fame candidate? I mean, I think you can't not possibly tell the story of baseball without George. Steinbrenner. Yeah, um, he turned a 13 million dollar investment in. 1973 to the most valuable property in all of sports. Yeah. Uh, when, you know, when he passed away, a billion dollar team. Um, his first of the two suspensions that he, that was for, uh, campaign finance violations related to, uh, Richard Nixon and the committee to reelect the president. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not good stuff. Definitely no. not good stuff. But President Reagan pardoned him, uh, while, you know, while he was in office. So that is, Whatever it is. It's done. It's, it's off his record. It's mm-hmm. pardoned. Uh, the second one, obviously, uh, you know, which related to the, <laughs> the Howard Spira, uh, uh, dirt gathering on Dave Winfield, which was initially supposed to be a lifetime ban, but was later turned out to be two years because Faye Vincent reinstate, was willing to reinstate him, mm-hmm. uh, ended up planting the seeds of the, uh, uh, late nineties, uh, uh, Yankees dynasty because, 
of Gene Michael's stewardship of the of of the team in his absence. They kept Bernie Williams. They kept Mariano Rivera. They didn't, you know, they they, Posada, they yeah. Kept, they, yeah, they assembled the, what you know what turned out to be the you know the the, the core five mm-hmm. uh, uh, without him. And and Steinbrenner, when he got back, he was you know. For one thing, you know the two longest-serving managers on on his watch, uh, Buck Showalter and then Joe Torre, uh, happened. I mean, he he learned to stay out of his own way, hmm. um, and you know that incredible run of success. Um, you know he mellowed with age, and and I mean there were you know he did some good things too. He was he was never never uh, slow in a, trying to attach the Yankees' name to good causes. You know when hmm. when uh, um, you know when, when like when it came to charitable things. Um, he always tried to give uh, players and and employees a second chance. I mean, you look at you know the resuscitation Billy Martin. careers of, of, <laughs> of you know Billy Martin, Steve Howe, Dwight Gooden, Daryl yeah. Strawberry. Strawberry. I mean, he was he was willing to take a chance. On mm-hmm. I mean, you know he he brought you know he brought people that he fired back. I mean, he there was you know I don't you know, I think he was like there was some good in him there mm. um, and. You know, but he made a lot of enemies in the game, and and when you talk about the sort of the the um you know the the uh, big market uh, uh, small market mentality, or the you know the spenders versus the hardliners, I mean, yeah, he and he and Reinsdorf were on the opposite sides of 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 a lot of things. Hmm. Um, you know, so uh, there's obviously some personal animosity there, but I you know I think that that he, I mean, if the Hall of Fame has Tom freaking Yaki in it, it could. Oh, jeez. Oof. Doesn't get much more racist than Tom Yaki. That's pretty. That's a great point. I hadn't even considered the Yaki comparison. Let me ask you about the, you know, these committees. You know, I think that it gets lost a little bit. We just kind of, for those of us in the uninformed, we just refer to them as the generic veterans committees. But of course, they've become more specific and rebranded and so forth. And now you've got the modern era committee, as you said. And we talked about some of the people on these committees: Reinsdorf and Larusa and Joe Morgan and all that. And Unfortunately, it does seem to be a little bit of an old boys club. And, oh, Davey Concepcion definitely deserves it because he was my double play partner or whatever. And it's preposterous. But, I, you know, I, I, that doesn't mean that I necessarily believe players shouldn't be involved. I just think it, there should be some combination of some, you know, objective analysis, whether it's specifically numerical or what have you, just some way of doing things rather than just picking a name out of a hat. And also, you know, if you want to do a little bit of eye test, like, I can live with that. There just has to be some process rather than, as you said, horse trading or, or politicking or whatever. What do we do with these committees? Yeah. If, you, if you can build your own 16-person committee, who's on this committee? Aside from yourself, and I'm not saying that to flatter you. It's actually, I would want you on the committee. Yeah. yeah. No, the era committees are made up of, uh, by, by the rules, Hall of Famers, uh, executives mm-hmm. and writers slash historians. Now, if yeah. you look at the rosters of these things, this time we had three writers, uh, one of whom, or three, no, three media members, one of whom is Steve Hurt of the Elias Bureau. Um, okay. and then the other two are ESPN's, uh, Tim Kirkchen and Claire Smith. Fantastic. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's just, there's not enough, there, there are no, they're, they're not historians there. John Thorne. Where's John Thorne? We've never had, John Thorne's never been on a committee. Bill James, Bill James. Never been on a yeah. committee. Rob Nyer, who's you know not even in the BBWAA anymore, yeah. has never been on a committee. There are eminently qualified baseball scholars who should be in that room at some point. There should be at least uh, you know a block larger than three of them hmm. uh, you know, to help provide some you know some level of objectivity and and, and historical perspective uh, to this. And and uh, um, this 
this, obviously they're, you know, those voices have been largely mooted in this, in, in this, uh, uh, in this particular format. And, you know, the other thing is, uh, uh, they have gone, you know, where it used to be they announced the voters, uh, at the same time they announced the ballot. Yeah. Uh, now they've taken to not doing so until a week before, uh, the election. Hmm. Um, you know, to protect, to protect those voters from, uh, you know, from, from the extra scrutiny that comes with it. And uh, I mean, I can sort of understand that because, I mean, in the age of social media, you know, anything is, is, is sure. fodder for controversy and, you know, you don't want to expose these people to, to, you know, the, the idiocy that, uh, uh, that can, that can come with it, uh, that come with that kind of a, you know, situation. But at just the same time, this is bad process and the obvious conflicts of interest that are there, uh, you know, look, Hall of Famers, if you're voted into the Hall of Fame, you reap a financial windfall. Yes. You know, and you've got your peers essentially voting on your future financial health. Mm. That's weird and, and, and unsavory in and of itself. And, you know, granted, it's in some ways it used to be, you know, when, you know, when we went from 2001 with Bill Mazeroski to last year with Morrison Trammell, there was not a thing ex-player elected to the Hall mm. of the small committees. You know, it was sort of like nobody's good enough for our country club. We don't want anybody to devalue our membership in the Hall of Fame, that was unsavory too. Yeah. Now, I mean, this, this, you know, this sort of, look, I, I think it's nice to see living ex-players get into the Hall, but I think obviously we need to make sure that they're the right ones. I mean, I, but, you know, going back to Baines for a minute, I mean, why are we splitting hairs over Fred McGriff and Dale Murphy and, and, yes. and Jeff Kent and, you know, it, you know, all, I mean, just removing the PED. Gary Sheffield, yeah, very good players, yeah. But, I mean, like, why are we splitting hairs over these guys if Fred McGriff is, I mean, if, uh, uh, if Harold Baines is suddenly the bar? Um, it's just frustrating and, and, uh, uh, it makes the ballot unmanageable. I mean, if you're, if you have to consider, you know, it's hard enough to, <laughs> you know, you're 12 or 13 guys down to 10, but if you've got 18 guys, you know, because, because there are literally 18 guys on this ballot who are better than Harold Baines, you've got a, you've got an unwieldy situation. I love uh, the notion of shielding those voters against social media. I'm imagining Jerry Reinsdorf on Snapchat, and I'm, I'm just I'm, I'm giggling. I'm, enjoy, I'm enjoying it very much. Uh, one more topic on the Hall of Fame. Uh, it's for people who even vaguely are aware of me or what I do. I think they know that I pushed very hard for Tim Raines to get in the Hall of Fame, along with you and a whole lot of people. And Raines' career eventually stood for itself. He got in the Hall of Fame. That's great. My favorite player, once Reigns departed the Expos, was a guy named Larry Walker. Hey, guess what? Larry Walker's on the ballot right now. Guess what? Larry Walker is a contentious candidate who probably deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. So although I don't really use social media anymore, uh, I do still in my writing and talking and so forth advocate my own way. And I believe, despite the fact that I love Larry Walker to the point that I would make signs honoring his hometown of Maple Ridge, British Columbia in high school art class, I still can remove myself and say, you know what? I think Walker has a case. You, who are not a maniac like me, do you think that Larry Walker has a case? And if so, why? Oh, hell yeah. I have Walker as as the 10th best right fielder of all time by my system. That's pretty obvious, good. Obvious choice for the Hall of Famer. And just when you look at the components that underlie war, he excelled in, 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 in hitting, even when you adjust for the fact that he played 31% mm-hmm. of his career in Coors Field. Uh, he excelled at base running. Um, which does not have any real park effects attached to it. Uh, he excelled in defense. Great defender. To the extent that we can measure defense, he was an excellent right fielder. Mm-hmm. I mean, Tony La Russa himself, 
who I hope is someday on a, on a small committee, if he's going to do this kind of advocating, I mm. hope he does it for Larry Walker too. You know, said, and he had Walker at the end of his career, said like he's one of the, like, one of the best I've ever seen in terms of all around players. Mm-hmm. You know, and Tony LaRusso has seen a lot of guys. Yeah. He wouldn't say, he wouldn't say that about Harold Baines. Like, you know, <laughs> Harold Baines could not do it all. Um, Harold Baines could do one thing and do one thing pretty well. Grow a beard. Do all those things. Do, do all those things. Absolutely what? Yes. Know, just dynamite. And he walked away from the game. You know, before his 40th birthday, because his body was so banged up, his knee, which he which he he wrecked one of his knees in the minor leagues, and even in his final season, he's just saying it was still causing him pains. Yeah, you know, this is a guy who, I mean, I think you know there are people who hold against him the fact that he was rarely played more than 140 games, and he occasionally dodged, uh, you know, the uh, a difficult lefty, even though he hit left-handers well, and his his uh, percentage of plate appearances against lefties is is pretty much on par with guys like Gwynn and Bond mm-hmm. um, uh, and Tommy, the last few uh, lefties to go into the Hall of Fame, uh, uh, you know, from the voters. Um, you know, that's the thing about wins above replacement is it it helps account for attendance. You know, if you could be so good playing 140 games a year, you know, that as, as a guy who's playing 160, that counts for something because presumably you've got an okay backup and you're not going to suffer too badly even if you don't, uh, because what this guy is doing is so good. Um, I, you know, I feel passionately about Larry Walker. I included him in the Cooperstown casebook to try to make his case. You know, I, I don't, I doubt it's directly uh, attributable to me, but we've seen his, his percentages rise, uh, uh, the last couple of years. It's not going to be, he's not going to get anywhere close to 75%. The hope is that he can have this sort of Alan Trammell-like surge uh, at the end of his candidacy and get to the point where, you know, the 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 the, the committee voters, you know, take him a little bit more seriously. I mean, Trammell Trammell had I think maxed out at 36.8 percent uh, and was uh, during the first 14 years of his candidacy fell to 25 something in year 14 because he was just getting lost in the shuffle, uh, you know, from the because of the PED uh, uh, backlog. And then got to 40% in this final year, 41%. And that had to help. Yeah. Because I know, I know for a fact, having talked to multiple, uh, uh, committee voters, that one of the first things they ask is, you know, what kind of, you know, what kind of support did this guy get on the writer's ballot? And, you know, 40% obviously is not 75%, but it's, it, you know, there's a, obviously it's, it's, a lot of people think that, that this guy's a Hall of Famer. Let's take a closer look. So I'm hopeful that, that in the final two years of Larry Walker's candidacy here, um, that he can get to uh, to a, a spot that that similarly helps him uh, in his next phase. Well, and I have to point out, having done a bunch of research on Walker when I was writing a book about the Expos, that especially in his early days, but throughout, this guy was took himself less seriously than anybody probably ever. The most self-deprecating player of all time, yeah. and uh, the stories about him submerging teammates in the hot tub and then farting are fantastic. I, like, you just cannot, you cannot make that case about every Hall of Famer. Furthermore, I would submit to you that 10th all-time in the list of right, Hall of Fame right fielders by Jaws has to be at least in the top five in terms of potential Hall of Famers whose nickname was Booger. I have, Probably number three or number four, I'm going to say. I don't think yeah. too many Boogers have made the Hall of Fame. There are many wonderful things about Larry Walker. The fact that his parents were Larry and Mary, his brothers were Carrie and Gary, and something else that rhymes with Airy. It's there were three of them, and uh, all this was stuff I included in the book. I excerpted something from your book. Uh, I think having to do with like is like I hit ball and I run. Uh, yeah, 
Like the stories of how raw he was in the minor leagues, like he didn't know he had to go back to second base <laughs> and first third on a ball that was caught. He he would cut across the diamond and like, <laughs> um, you know, or do do something like that. And he hadn't faced like he was playing fifteen games a year yeah. uh, as an amateur because he was he was a hockey first guy who grew up with Cam Neely. Yep. Um, you know, there's, Maple Ridge. like he was so uh, he was so raw, and for him for so somebody so raw to turn themselves into such an incredible all around player is. You know, it's an inspiring story, and and I, I think it really, um, I I really hope that his that his uh, uh, his journey does end in Cooperstown. I mean, a funny as hell guy, uh, self the the uh, the batter against Randy Johnson, the All Star, <laughs> yes, sails a pitch over his head. <laughs> he smirks and he turns his helmet around. <laughs> pitch uh, from the right-handed batter's box. Goes back and looks like, yes, you know, and uh, like just a gift for. A gift for that, and I remember very fondly uh, the time he, you know, he, against the Dodgers. Of course, he, he accidentally forgot how, mm-hmm. he forgot how many outs there were, and threw uh, the, the the ball he got for the second out into the stands, and, and a runner scored. And uh, I don't know the the the, uh, the play was moot anyway. I think because Pedro Martinez gave up a home run on the next pitch, and and but it was just. You know, and he could laugh about it, and, and uh, you know, I think he lightened he lightened the hearts of anybody who watched the game. He did. One more Walker fact: uh, got married November third at three thirty three p.m. That's how much he liked the number three. And he wore number thirty three during his career. Yes, lots of Walker stuff. I'm a big fan. All right, so I want to quickly talk about some uh, happenings at the winter meetings. I don't want to keep you too long because I know it's peak winter meetings time at this point. But you wrote about the Dodgers today, and they're you know to me maybe the most fascinating team other than the Padres because the Padres. Sign Hosmer, the fact that they're even remotely rumored to be maybe in on Harper, which is not going to happen, but that there's real padres in this. It feels like the Padres have been the laggard of Major League Baseball for 50 years, other than maybe the Expos. Having said that, let's assume that the Dodgers are a team that's a contender for Harper and Machado. One of the things that they could end up doing is breaking that logjam of outfielders. They have a lot of them, man. They got Kemp and they got Peterson, they got Puig. They got Bellinger. They got the kid Verdugo. Lots of things that could be done. They're allegedly trying to move payroll, presumably so they can go subsequently add some payroll. Where are we at? Are the Dodgers likely to be the most active team? Because it kind of seems like they might be. Well, I think they're going to wind up doing something not unlike what they did at the 2014 winter meetings or uh, whatever the year was that they that they made the midsummer trade uh, involving Matt Latos or the deal that they made last winter involving Matt Kemp. Which is to move some dead money around, yeah. uh, taking on a bad contract, buying some prospects from one team, and using them to get uh, like some high-profile talent from another team. I mean, these like really complicated deals. We heard the name Homer Bailey mentioned. Um, you know, at first it was funny. I was I was in the media room, and I like we 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 somebody had connected the Reds and Dodgers, and we were like riffing on like what what could this possibly mean and somebody <laughs> threw out the name homer bailey and all of us within earshot it was like you know had these looks on our he face plays like, fed bad shit. <laughs> and two hours later we see ken rosenthal tweeting about homer bailey uh and uh um you know so it's like we willed this into existence or whatever um i you know they're the dodgers have tons of Tons of starting pitching depth as well. Ross Stripling, Rich Hill, Alex Wood. Somebody's going to go there. Hill's making 18 million. Wood's probably going to make about nine million. Um, Kemp with 21 million plus. Uh, you know, and and some young talent. A lot of lot of club control for guys like Jock and Verdugo. Uh, obviously, Cody Bellinger's name has even been in the mix. Although I think it would take a massive, massive uh, move to you know to to 
to do that. But I think if you clear out some outfield depth and offload some some payroll, suddenly Bryce Harper looks doable. Um, or Corey Kluber. Yeah. Do, like you can get Corey Kluber from the Indians for, let's just say Puig and Verdugo or something like that. Um, there's just a, a lot of ways that they can configure this. They have so many options. You know, they've talked about, uh, JT Realmuto with the Marlins. Um, you know, uh, Puig, uh, uh, it might be of interest to the Reds because, uh, they just hired Turner Ward, uh, who was, uh, uh, his, uh, the hitting coach for the Dodgers and yep. mentor, uh, Puig's mentor. Um, those kisses, uh, that we saw on, uh, uh, on TV at every, every turn after, after Puig did something good, uh, uh, in the postseason. It's just, there's, there's so many options for them. And, and you know, you know, they just reset their, their, uh, uh, their tax, uh, um. Yeah, got under the competitive balance tax. Yeah. Yeah. By getting under the, by getting under the, the threshold this year. And, you know, there were published reports that they don't plan to exceed it. But, you know, I think that they, they would for the right deal. And, and, you know, this is a, this is a team that's been to the mountain twice now and, and come away empty. And, uh, I think there's a sense they do have to do, shake it up a little bit. And if, if you've got a rotation that's got Kluber and Kershaw, uh, uh, and, you know, Walker Bueller in it, suddenly, oh man, look out. This starts to look really really enticing or if you've got an outfield that's got uh, uh Bryce Harper in it I don't know they're not going to wind up doing all these things um but they just they've got so many options on the table and whatever they do I think you're going to come away with something that's like oh wow the Dodgers you know they're they've gotten even better here they're you know they're they're still the team to beat in the National League you know what struck me about the Dodgers and I wrote about them recently was they had this giant payroll it didn't go in over the tax but it was a big payroll a lot of stars and in the end, they were run like a, either a smaller market club or maybe like a Stratomatic team. In that their half their lineup was platoons, right? That they've trotted out Muncie and Peterson and Bellinger and all these guys and Kike and and all these guys getting timeshares. And you wait until the World Series when you have tons of rest, when there's no tomorrow, when managers are you know usually pretty good. And Alex Cora absolutely exploited them. Just you know, turn guys around and turn guys around, and turn guys around. To the point that you would have a righty-righty matchup where the righty hits, you know, 210 with no home runs against right-handers against some guy throwing 102 miles an hour. You have no chance in hell. And it struck me that what the Dodgers can do with a higher payroll or with just this offseason is maybe they don't even have a higher payroll, but they're just configured differently and that they can go out and get somebody like Harper, sure. But there was even a Jose Abreu rumor. And Jose Abreu was just a good flat-out hitter. He doesn't mash lefties per se. He's just good. He hits righties, he hits lefties, that's it. Rather than, well, this guy's good, but you know what? He has this gigantic weakness where if a guy who happens to have an arm on this side can't hit at all. And that occurred to me to be that that's the luxury you have as a big revenue club. You don't have to mess around anymore. Andrew Friedman is not running the Tampa Bay Rays anymore. They want a Brayu, maybe a Harper, maybe Machado. Go out and get these guys, and you don't have to split hairs like that because you will get exploited in the postseason now that managers manage better than they ever have in baseball history. Yeah, well, you know, at that point I think is arguable because while they're armed with more information, I think we've seen the evolution of the manager's job being, you know, one that's more centered around, you know, working well with the front offices and being a leader of men as opposed to the, uh, the tactical X's and O's. Yeah. Uh, Cora, I think, you know, I think surprised a lot of people that he was so good at that, but the Dodgers, as you say, left themselves rife for, for that kind of exploitation. And, you know, the difference between, I think, the, the very good players and the truly great players is, you know, it has a lot to do with being platoon proof. Um, you know, and they've, you look at some of the guys that are, that, that have been keys to their offense the last couple of years. I mean, they, you know, they 
found Justin Turner. They found Chris Taylor. They found Max Muncy. These guys were like waiver yeah. bait guys, and they turned them into lineup staples, if not stars. And uh, uh, that's a great thing to do, especially when you you know when you're when you're spending tons of money elsewhere. But yes, they can. You know, it would be nice if they, for their sake, if they could, uh, um, you know, get some solid guys that that were platoon proof. And they had lost. You know, they lost Corey Seager, so that was one aspect. Yes. But they had to go out and get Manny Machado. Um, but yeah, it was, just, it was always moving parts and, you know, in some ways that kind of frustrates people. Um, you know, when is Dave Roberts going to ditch all this nonsense and go with a traditional set lineup? Well, you know, that's, uh, you have the information to do this stuff, to do it. And it's more than just lefty righty. It has to do with, you know, what kind of pitches a guy, of course, and, you know, velocity and, and location and ground ball, fly ball and things like that. You know, they were, they weren't just, Winging it. They had information that suggested that these were the right moves, but, um, you know, and it wasn't like Alex Cora was going with his gut, uh, you know, all the time. He had that information too because the Red Sox front office wasn't born last night. Um, you know, and it's just the better, the better team won there, but you're right. I think the, the Dodgers could consolidate. I think that's what it comes down to. Yes. All this comes down to is they have so many pieces and they could consolidate them into fewer, better pieces that may cost more money, but Having shed some payroll, they're they're in a they've got some more flexibility back. And one last question, I want to ask you about the Phillies. Uh, they just signed Andrew McCutcheon today. They traded for Segura. They traded away Santana, which means that Reese Hoskins can go play first base and stop being Greg Luzinski at age seventy-five playing left field, which is nice. Uh, this is an interesting ball club now because this was a team that you know a, a deep sleeper for some people, and I thought they'd be pretty decent, but they contended into September. I mean, they were really good for a while. But had obvious weaknesses. Shortstop was a disaster. Well, they filled that. Outfield, they had a lot of guys, but not many of them were very good. Well, okay, McCutcheon is an upgrade there. Uh, moving over Hoskins upgrades a defense that was, this is true, the worst defense in all of baseball by defensive runs saved. So that's a big plus, even if you just literally move a guy. And now there's something. So, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. I, I was going to say, I mean, yes, I, I still worry a little bit, like, you know, not everybody believes Segura can play shortstop uh, uh, forever. And McCutcheon, even though he's no longer a center fielder, his defense is not great. I, I don't have the metrics in front of me here, but you know, plus two last year, but he will he will erode over time. I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's 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 got to be some concern there. Um, you know, granted, getting you know getting Hoskins out of uh, left field is is a key move. Yeah. Um, you know, and and back at first base, that you know, I think that's that's the right move. But this is not a perfect team. Uh, in that regard yet either. Uh, but they have taken steps forward. Um, you know, I, I heard them connected to Zach Britton, uh, that both they and the Cardinals are vying for Zach Britton. Yep. Uh, obviously, you know, a, a bullpen upgrade is probably out there for them. Mm-hmm. There's lots of names, uh, you know, in, in terms of the high end of the reliever market and, and, and Britain's one of them. Um, yeah, there's, you know, there's a lot they could do, but man, that NL East is, is, uh, uh, you know, really an arms race. I mean, we've seen, um, the Braves take steps to get better. They just won it, you know. They just won the division. We've seen, you know, the Mets doing, trying to do some interesting stuff. I mean, I don't love the Cano uh, Diaz deal from them in terms of like, you know, long term you're catching falling knives there. A 36 year old second baseman who's whose whose career is likely to go down. A reliever who's at the absolute peak of his value and so is likely to go down. But from a 2019 standpoint, yes, they are probably going to be a more competitive team in them. Particularly if they keep Syndergaard um, and don't trade with the Yankees or you know whatever, yeah. Um, 
you know, it's it, this is suddenly and and obviously the Nationals aren't sitting still either um, after losing Harper because they just went out and got got Patrick Corbin and yep. they're not done yet. So you know, this is a this is going to be a fun division to watch. I think. Well, so the question I was going to ask just to round it all off was. Whatever you think of Segura and McCutcheon, and, and the good news is, paradoxically, if you're really terrible at one position, then you get an okay guy and you could be a, you could be two or three wins better. So that's nice. That certainly helps. But let's assume that you like them, you don't like them, but that they're upgrades of some degree. What do you make of the idea of going out and being aggressive early in the offseason, given where we're at in the baseball landscape, which is this? J.D. Martinez signed on February 26th last year. Bryce Harper probably not signing in 2018. Manny Machado might take a while. The musical chairs game is going to end with only two teams, maybe one team, getting Harper Machado, and that's it. So what about the idea of going out and getting pretty good players, as many as you can now, so that you can still bid on Harper and Machado later, and maybe you get them, and maybe they're the final piece of the World Series, but if you fail, at least you got guys and you didn't end up with nothing. Seems to me that from that standpoint, the Phillies are doing something good here because you can really get screwed if you play the waiting game because it looks like, at least recent history suggests, the free agent market is different than I can remember ever in our baseball-covering lifetimes. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for, for, for that. And I think when you look at the fact that Harper and Machado are both out there and that they've been you know, considered to be likely to land one of them, uh, and they could still go either way, and these the, the moves that they just made are not – going to be roadblocks, they will come away with surplus talent that they can move. Yep. If they were, for example, to sign Machado uh, to play shortstop, you put Segura back at second base, um, and you, you, you could you could trade uh, C- uh, Cesar Hernandez. Uh, um, if you uh, if you sign Har- I mean you know you've, you've you've moved Hoskins out of out of left field with McCutcheon, mm-hmm. uh, you can sign Harper to play right field, and, and that situation with Nick Williams and uh, um, you know was 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 not good last year mm-hmm. on, on either side of the ball. So you know there's there they there's still avenues to improve with either of those superstars, and uh, uh, yeah, they, they've got some of the shopping out of the way already. Uh, I think uh, uh, puts them in a very good position. Jay Jaffe, I was put in a very good position to end up talking to you on this podcast this evening. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, follow Jay Jaffe's work at Fangraphs. He's fantastic. Follow him on Twitter. Pick up the Cooperstown Casebook, which is a really, really cool book, not just about the numbers in the Hall of Fame, but really about baseball history. There's some really fun anecdotes in there, too. So even if you don't particularly want to know about the historical elements of war or whatever, there's something in there for you, too. You can get great stories on Larry Walker and dozens and dozens and dozens of other players. Jay, thanks so much for coming on. Hey, sure, Jenna. Always a pleasure.